0: Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, Ryan Grimm here, just dropping in to introduce you
1: to Lever Time with David Sirota. It's the flagship podcast of The Lever, an investigative news outlet staffed and run by a lot of friends of ours over here at The Intercept. Now, if you like Deconstructed, which presumably you do, otherwise, why are you listening to this right now? Be sure to check out The Lever if you haven't. Just search for Lever Time with David Sirota in your podcast player. As a listener to Deconstructed, you can get a special discount on a full subscription to The Lever's investigative reporting and news. For that offer, go to levernews.com slash deconstructed. Enjoy the episode. <laughs>
2: Hello and welcome to Lever Time, the flagship podcast from The Lever, an independent investigative news outlet. I am producer Frank Capello, filling in for David Sirota this week, who is on vacation. On today's show, we will be talking about the Supreme Court's shadow docket. Now, if you've never heard of the shadow docket, that is kind of the point of the shadow docket. These are the cases that occur outside of the court's regular docket, meaning they don't receive nearly as much public scrutiny, even though they carry just as much legal weight. If you care at all about the outsized power being wielded by the Supreme Court and its extremist conservative majority, then this is an extremely important topic. So today we'll be sharing David Sirota's interview with an author of a new book about the shadow docket who explains everything you need to know about these obscured court cases. For our paid subscribers, we are always dropping exclusive bonus episodes into our Lever Premium Podcasts feed. This past Monday, we published David's interview with media critic Norman Solomon about his new book, War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. The book details how the United States military has been in a perpetual state of war since the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, wars that have gone massively underreported by the media. Again, you can check that out on the Lever Premium Podcast's feed. If you want access to our premium content, head over to levernews.com and click the subscribe button in the top right to become a supporting subscriber. This will give you access to the Lever Premium Podcasts feed, exclusive live events, plus all of the in-depth reporting and investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. The only way independent media grows and thrives is because of passionate supporters and word of mouth, and we need all the help we can get to combat the inane bullshit that is corporate media. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time speaking on my own today with David absent, but I did want to highlight some new reporting that we've just done over at The Lever in regards to the Medicaid redetermination process. So at the end of 2022, President Biden signed legislation ending the pandemic error requirement that states maintain Medicaid coverage for all beneficiaries. This has allowed states to start cutting millions of people from their roles, and some experts estimate this could result in upwards of 17 to 24 million people losing their health insurance coverage. So the story that we just published at The Lever today, written by Lever reporter Matthew Cunningham Cook, is about one of the federal contractors involved in those Medicaid redeterminations. The company is called Maximus. And as I said, they are a federal contractor involved in privatizing government services And they've been doing a lot of these new Medicaid eligibility reviews. So so far, more than 70% of those who have recently lost Medicaid coverage have been terminated not because of ineligibility, but due to, quote unquote, administrative reasons. And these could be anything such as not responding to a piece of mail fast enough or uh, getting dropped from a phone call with a redetermination specialist. Things that are mostly innocuous mistakes. But the reason the lever published this story about Maximus, again, this is the federal contractor that dominates 60% of the Medicaid eligibility market and handles various aspects of the redetermination process. Based on their contracts with the federal government, Maximus and other contractors involved in these redeterminations have financial incentives to make Medicaid more bureaucratic to make it harder to enroll and to make it easier for recipients to get kicked off and lose their coverage. So basically throwing people off of their health insurance is becoming a booming cottage industry here due to these Medicaid redeterminations. In fact, Maximus has increased its earning estimate by $100 million. Its share price has risen by nearly 50%, and its CEO took home $6.3 million in compensation in 2022. This is an incredibly important story. As I mentioned, millions of people will potentially be losing their health coverage in the near future. And the fact that there is a private sector industry profiting off of this, a function that the government easily could have done itself, but Like most things today, it has been outsourced to private interests so that they can profit off of what should just be a very standard government function. Matthew did a really terrific job writing up this story. Check it out at LeverNews.com. You can read the entire thing and share it with your friends and family. If you know anyone that's on Medicaid... You know, give them a heads up. Let them know that these redeterminations will be happening, and hopefully you can help someone keep their health insurance coverage. All right, we should stop there because we should get to uh, the main interview today, which is about the Supreme Court's shadow docket. But first, we are going to take a quick break. Welcome back to Lever Time. For our main story today, we're going to be talking about one of the most important functions of the Supreme Court that most people don't even know about, and that is the shadow docket. Now, the story of the Supreme Court over the last several years has been one of right-wing extremism and corruption. Led by Federalist Society co-chair and Donald Trump's former judicial advisor, Leonard Leo, the conservative legal movement finally managed to solidify its 6-3 majority on the high court. Since then, its docket of cases have resulted in what feels like a marathon of devastating decisions to everything from affirmative action to environmental regulation to the right to an abortion. On top of that, the Supreme Court has recently been barraged by a number of investigative exposés revealing its underlying corruption, namely how Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito both failed to disclose gifts they received from conservative billionaires— both of whom had ties to, you guessed it, Leonard Leo. For these reasons, the Supreme Court has gotten a lot of attention in the last several years, and rightfully so. But there is another extremely important function of the court that doesn't receive nearly as much attention, and that is the aptly named shadow docket. These are the cases that occur outside of the court's regular docket. Now, the regular docket are the big cases. Those are the ones we hear about. Those are the ones that actually get attention in the media, but the shadow dog these cases usually involve urgent or emergency matters, including requests for emergency stays, injunctions, and other types of temporary relief. And these cases are often decided through brief orders, meaning without oral arguments or full written opinions. For example, back in 2019, a case challenging then-President Trump's diversion of military funds to build his border wall was making its way through the lower courts. A federal district court judge ruled that the diversion was unconstitutional. Then the Trump administration went to the Supreme Court with an emergency appeal to block the lower court order, and the justices ruled in the Trump administration's favor by a five to four vote with no written opinion, effectively leapfrogging the regular legal process. And now that the Supreme Court's conservative majority has essentially unchallenged authority to overturn any law it doesn't like, the shadow docket is being used more than ever. The Bush and Obama administrations petitioned the Supreme Court for emergency relief only eight times combined. That is roughly once every two years. By contrast, the Trump administration asked the court for emergency relief 41 times. For all of these reasons, today we'll be sharing David Sroda's interview with Stephen Vladek. Stephen is a professor of law at the University of Texas School of Law and the author of the new book, The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. Hey, Steve, how are you doing? Doing well, how are you? Good, I'm so glad
0: you wrote this book, uh, The Shadow Docket. I feel like it's this, it's this thing that's very shadowy, obviously, that overlays and infects and uh, affects all of our lives in all sorts of ways that many of us, arguably most of us don't even have any, uh, any understanding of any awareness of. So let's start there. The Supreme Court has this thing called a shadow docket. Why is it shadowy? What is it? Why should people care about it?
1: Sure. I mean, I think the the best place to start is is with what isn't the shadow docket. So, you know, when we talk about the Supreme Court, we spend a lot of time on what, for lack of a better term, might be called the merits docket. That is to say the 60 or so high profile, you know, very visible cases that the justices decide after a very, very lengthy process um, through these long signed opinions that we get. Throughout May and June, we're getting a bunch of them now. And I think there's a tendency to think that like, that's the Supreme Court. That's what the Supreme Court does. The shadow docket, it's a term that was coined by a Chicago law professor named Will Bode to describe everything else the Supreme Court does. Um, and it turns out that most of what the Supreme Court does, at least by volume, is not these fancy signed merits decisions, but rather these unsigned, almost always unexplained orders. Um, that tend to get less attention, whether because they're less important in the aggregate, or because they're less accessible because they don't say anything, or some combination of both. Um And Will's insight, you know, when he coined the term about eight years ago, was that a lot of pretty important stuff happens in the shadows. Um, Not necessarily bad stuff, but important stuff. And, you know, I wrote the book at least to fill in A decent chunk of that history, and to try to argue that actually, if you look at the last six or seven years, especially, some pretty significant and troubling stuff has happened in the shadows. Shadows not because it's like some nefarious plot on the part of the justices, but shadows in the sense that, like, just not visible to the average person the way that the more traditional output of the court might be. The impetus for the book was hey, folks out there who care about the Supreme Court, folks who are affected by the Supreme Court. You ought to know about this, and you ought to be able to sort of understand and decide for yourselves, right, whether the court is acting appropriately in this context as well as that one.
0: Now, I just want to clarify here. I mean, the court, it seems to me, does does a couple things. Obviously, it issues these rulings where there's all these arguments, and they justify why they're issuing these rulings, and that those justifications can set precedents, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, that's like the Supreme Court that everybody kind of knows. Then there's denying cases. They're just, there's not going to hear a case. A case comes up to the Supreme Court. Hey, we're arguing this in a, in a lower court. We're arguing this in state court. And the Supreme Court is like, yeah, we're not listening. We're not going to even hear that, which in a sense, in a lot of cases, it is, is sort of a ruling unto itself, or at least that whatever the lower court did is what's going to, to be for now. Then there's the shadow docket, which is, sort of in the middle, like the court is, is actually making rulings, uh, but not kind of justifying them. A- and, and I, I think this is the part that I think is, is so dangerous that it's one thing to say, listen, we're not going to listen to a case because the lower courts, they got it fine. It's another, th- it's another thing to say, all right, we're going to completely explain why we're doing something and create, you know, precedent, common law, uh, justifications. The public understands this. The shadow docket is really kind of seems like people on Mount Olympus just handing down rulings without even explaining them. And so I, I, I wonder if that's the way to to look at it. And and my question then to you is, um, what does that do in your mind to the legitimacy of the court? This legitimacy crisis. If the court can hand down these big rulings without even having to explain them.
1: So I would say as one sort of tiny clarification, I, I actually think denials of certiorari, denying review is also the shadow docket. Sure, I mean, okay, I sure. It, those rulings also can matter. But no, But I mean, David, what you're focusing on is what might call the sort of the emergency docket. This is the the smaller slice. Um, And yeah, I mean, let, let's just take a couple of examples. You know, in September, 2021, the Supreme Court allows Texas to put into effect a incredibly controversial six week abortion ban um, by refusing to intervene through an emergency order in a context in which it had just spent months intervening over and over again to block state laws in blue states um, on you know novel religious liberty grounds. Um, President Biden's OSHA vaccination mandate blocked on the shadow docket, right? Um, Trump immigration policies, the border wall, right? Unblocked on the shadow docket, and. You know, in the abstract I don't know that it's necessarily bad that there are at least some rulings the Supreme Court doesn't explain. The problem is that when you look at the body of rulings, David, right? The the rulings tend to defy any neutral legal principle. Um and so those of us who sort of study the whole body say, well, maybe they're doing this because they don't like this kind of lower court decision, or maybe they're doing this because they are sympathetic to executive branch immigration policies. When you look at that in this context, none of those justifications hold up because what you see in the pattern is you see the court favoring the Trump administration and red states, disfavoring the Biden administration and blue states. And what would normally insulate the justices against charges that they're just voting their partisan policy preferences is the rationale that we don't have. And so the justifications, you know, the the court does not expect us to agree with the principles that are espoused in these decisions, but they expect us to agree that these are principled decisions. And on the shadow docket, when most of these rulings have no explanation whatsoever, that really, really complicates the story, especially when, as we've seen over the last five or six years, the pattern looks far more nefarious.
0: Right. So the judges are going out. I mean, you know, Amy Coney Barrett says, you know, we're not a bunch of political hacks. Uh, Clarence Thomas goes out uh, says you know he's worried about the Supreme Court's uh, legitimacy in the in the public's mind obviously John Roberts has has indicated similar concerns meanwhile they're handing down these these uh, monumental rulings without even explaining them without even uh, offering a, a kind of a legal architecture or an or an argument architecture for why these rulings are happening let me ask a technical question then how does the court for those who don't know how does the court decide which cases to take and and put on the merits docket where you're going to get a whole explanation and how does it decide uh, whether to use the shadow docket like what's what's the mechanics of that process
1: so it can vary i mean so, so let's just talk through a typical case so a typical case that gets to the supreme court gets there after Usually years, right, of litigation in lower state or federal courts, both the federal courts and state courts. They have these multi-level court systems. And so by the time the Supreme Court is usually asked to take up an appeal, a a petition for a writ of certiorari, because we use obscure Latin to confuse everybody. um, The case has been litigated. The factual record has been developed. The arguments have been made. The lower courts have weighed in. And at that point, the parties fight over whether the Supreme Court should step in. And in well over 99% of the court's cases, it's up to the justices whether to step in. There are almost no cases the court has to hear today that actually wasn't true historically. That's mostly a modern phenomenon. Um, And also an important part of understanding how the Supreme Court came to have all this power, right? Because they they can pick and choose the cases they hear. But, you know, David, the question is, what tends to bring a case to the emergency side of the docket is... Instead of waiting the two, three, four years for the case to get all the way to the Supreme Court, what if a party wants the Supreme Court to intervene right away? Um, Because a lower court decision is incredibly disruptive, or uh, a lower court didn't block a disruptive government policy that should be blocked for however long the appeal takes. And that's where we get to this idea of emergency relief, where the principle is we want the Supreme Court to adjust the status quo for however long it takes the case to work its way all the way through the court system. And the reality, part of why I wrote the book, was to put into historical context the court's recent behavior. Historically, the court just did not do that very often. I mean, the court's general view was that emergency relief is the exception, um, that it really should only be used in cases where there was a compelling argument for stepping in now versus later. And, you know, David, for the better part of Gosh, 35 years from 1980 to 2015, that was typically, you know, focused on death penalty cases where you have someone who's about to be executed and, you know, he has plausible objections to his conviction or his sentence or his method of execution. And the court says, well, hey, maybe we should actually freeze the execution to give the court's time to work this out. That was the typical emergency application. That was the typical intervention by the Supreme Court. Those are big deals, David, but not in ways that affect all of us, right? I mean, the, you know, ruling up or down on whether John Doe can be executed tends not to have society-wide effects. Um, what shifts starting in the Trump administration is instead of waiting for debates over statewide or nationwide policies to work their way all the way through the court system, the justices start intervening far more often and at the Trump administration's request very early in cases, to at least initially unblock Trump administration policies that lower courts had blocked. As time goes on, this starts spreading beyond the Trump administration to blocking state COVID mitigation measures, to unblocking um, congressional district maps after the 2020 census that had been blocked by lower courts. And so we start to see the Supreme Court, through emergency orders, actually stepping into every single type of contentious public policy dispute at a very early stage and in a context where historically the justices were not inclined to explain their intervention, but now the interventions are producing massive effects.
0: I mean, what's what's kind of crazy, although I, I guess I guess nothing's crazy anymore, nothing's shocking anymore, is that the, these rulings, these emergency interventions are coming from a court Dominated by a conservative movement that has spent decades bewailing and bemoaning, uh, activist judges, right? I mean, like, like there was a, there's a fundamental tension here between a, in a conservative movement that has said, you know, the j- judges don't need to make law. They only need to interpret law and they shouldn't be kind of intervening. And then a Roberts court that has made a habit of like, you know, going out of its way to intervene, uh, and again, intervene without explanation. Now, that brings me to, to I mentioned John Roberts. I want to talk a little bit about his legacy here, or at least what he is spearheading. There's a part of your book where you say, when it comes to the shadow docket, Roberts' votes have been the canary in the coal mine. Talk to us about the role that, that John Roberts has played here.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's a fascinating character in the story. So, um, one of the common responses I get to, to, to the book, to other arguments I've made is that criticisms of the shadow docket are just progressives, you know, who are pissed off at the conservative majority doing anything they can to attack the court. And, you know, John Roberts is a pretty powerful counter argument to that because he's dissenting in a lot of these cases. So there are a number of examples of cases where the court splits David five to four. Over whether to grant an emergency application. And Roberts joins the three Democratic appointees in saying, no, we shouldn't. Um, This starts right after Justice Barrett is appointed in late October 2020. Barrett's first public vote on the court is to block New York COVID restrictions on the eve of Thanksgiving um, over a dissent from John Roberts. And what's fascinating is in all of these cases, in that New York case, um, in the Texas abortion case, in the Alabama redistricting case, Roberts's dissents are always striking the same note, which is I'm actually sympathetic to where the other five conservatives want to go on the merits. But this is not the way to do it. Um, right. That his his objections are process based and institutional, where he's saying the question for us on an emergency application is not what we think the law should be, but rather whether the lower court erred in a way that is so egregious as to warrant some kind of extraordinary intervention. He says, that's a high bar (laughs) that goes beyond just what do we think the answer is. And I think it's really telling that John Roberts, no fan of abortion, affirmative action, the Voting Rights Act, I mean, you name it, is standing up and saying, actually, this is not what we should be doing in these cases.
0: I I also want to ask the, the historical question, which is, Empirically speaking, how different is this era from past eras? I mean, obviously, the use of the shadow docket on very high profile cases makes headlines in a way to uh, make the public aware that this is going on. But I just wonder, are, is there data on, you know, I don't know, 50 years ago, 75 years ago, they weren't or they were using the shadow docket or emergency orders m- much less uh, than they are now?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's to do the data well is actually really hard. So a lot of it's anecdotal um, as opposed to empirical. But one of the things I try really hard to do in the book is to contrast how the court approached emergency applications really before 1980. Turns out that's really the tip-over point for the process. And before 1980, you know, the court got emergency applications. But again, we, we talked about this before. The norm was just, you know, a presumption against intervention. And David, the way the court processed them was radically different. Um, so in the old days, I say, as, you know, someone born in the 1970s, the way the court would handle emergency applications, it would go to the so-called circuit justice, the one of the nine justices who had geographic responsibility for the place where the case came from. And the the understanding was that the circuit justice would do all the work. Um, he He'd hold oral argument oftentimes in chambers. Um, He would write an opinion explaining why he was or was not granting relief. But, David, no one would confuse that for a ruling of the full court. And so the norm was if it was really an emergency, we'd have this one justice to sort of deal with the status quo in ways that could have the least possible implications for other cases and for other people. And you saw maybe one or two of those a year. Um and almost never on the scale we're talking about. We're talking about nationwide or statewide policies. Fast forward to, you know, 2017, where all of a sudden you see the Trump administration by itself go to the court 41 times in four years, um, right after Bush and Obama between them had gone eight times in 16 years. Um, and the court is granting these at a, you know, sort of 75% clip. And so I think it's a combination of more interventions, interventions that are qualitatively more impactful because they are affecting a broader class of cases and the policies that they're acting against are directed toward a larger class of people. Um, and interventions, David, that are, I think, more at the heartland of contemporary public policy disputes in ways that they actually weren't during the Bush and Obama administrations, where a lot of those interventions were actually technical cases where the justices actually didn't even – no one dissented from what the court did. So it's not just that it's more. It's that it's more with these broader qualitative impacts in contexts that are more obviously ideologically charged and politically divisive.
0: I want to talk about how Congress and and the legislation-making process uh, has impacted some of this. Uh, For instance, the Supreme Court Case Selections Act – of 1988. That's that old chestnut. Of these bills. <laughs> yeah. How does that affect this? How did that change the justice's powers to pick and choose issues within cases, issues in which they want to make a particular stand? Yeah, I mean, this is
1: actually I think a really subtle but important thing I try to do in the book, right, which is to, to help folks understand not just this technical thing about emergency applications, but just more generally how the Supreme Court came to have all this power, period. Um, and The the story that I try to tell is, you know, the court's power, David, to pick and choose its cases, and as you say, to pick and choose within a case what questions it's going to decide, was not a founding era idea, Um, right? For the first 101 years that the Supreme Court exists as an institution, it had to hear every case Congress told it to hear, which meant two very important things. One, it meant it was up to Congress and not the justices to set the court's agenda, Two, it meant that um, the court was beholden to Congress in ways that were pretty significant because the more that the justices pissed Congress off, the more Congress would retaliate. Um, Congress famously cancels the Supreme Court's entire 1802 term. Um, Congress takes a case about Reconstruction that it didn't want the court to decide in 1869 and just says, hey, Supreme Court, you can't hear this case anymore. Um, right? The court literally sat in the Capitol until 1935. And so what this all meant was not that the court was impotent. I mean, there were major decisions from the court throughout this era, but the court was just one of the three branches. And it was it was part of this healthy interbranch dynamic. Fast forward to, you mentioned the Case Selections Act of 1988. That's really the second of a two-part story that starts in 1925, where Congress progressively gives up and cedes to the justices the power to pick and choose the cases the court's going to decide. And I think what that really, really signifies, what it manifests today, is that the court no longer feels beholden to Congress at all. Um, it doesn't hear any case it doesn't want to. It doesn't decide any question it doesn't want to. In the context of emergency applications, it does whatever the heck it wants without any real pushback from Congress. And what that means is Even if you are a conservative who likes the bottom line of these rulings, it's coming from an unaccountable court. And that's, you know, one of the real sort of underlying themes of the book is that part of the story is really about accountability um, and about how an unaccountable court is a court that's going to do things that are inconsistent and that make the court look political. In ways that Congress has an institutional interest in pushing back against, but for various reasons just has stopped doing.
0: I really want to talk uh, about this because this – I think everybody who's been following, for instance, all the corruption mess at the Supreme Court uh, is wondering why isn't anything happening here and – what you seem to get from most uh, democratic lawmakers is, well, the court needs to clean itself up. And you're like, wait a minute, what, what is going on here? You are a co-equal branch of government and it, you have power here. So I just want to take, take a step into that for a second. What does the Constitution say about what Congress can do vis-a-vis the court system? I mean, as I understand it, Congress gets to gets to set some of the limits of what case, what kinds of cases the courts can hear and how the courts are structured, et cetera, et cetera. I feel like this has all been forgotten, but just for folks who've watched MSNBC and seen Democrats, you know, stand up there and say, well, I hope the court cleans itself up. Like what could Congress actually do? A
1: lot. Um, so I think the, the key st- starting point is what Congress can't do. Um, so under article three, right, Congress cannot reduce the justice's salary and Congress cannot, you know, kick them off without impeaching them. Um, David, that's it. Like, that is it. <laughs> um, and so just to go with historical examples, we talked about how Congress canceled an entire term of the court. Um, Congress uh, ha- controls the court's budget beyond the justices' salaries. There's a really famous example. I, I say famous. There's famous in my nerdy law <laughs> professor universe. Um, there is a an example known to nerds like me where in 1964, in the middle of the civil rights era, Congress votes a massive pay raise to federal judges because they've been underpaid for actually decades at that point. But the Supreme Court justices get the smallest of the pay raises by far. And Congress says, this is because we're dissatisfied with your rulings. Like Congress docks the pay raise um, in substantive opposition to the rulings. Uh, David, till 1911, Congress used to make the justices literally quote, ride the circuit. Quote. Like they, they had to go travel around the country to hear cases. Something that really increasingly served no purpose other than to remind the justices who the boss was. The fact that the Supreme Court has its own building is only because Congress gave it to them. So, you know, the notion that like Congress is powerless um, is just utterly belied by all of the history. But it's also, again, David, a symptom of this disease. That what makes today's court different is not that there's a conservative majority. There have been conservative majorities on the Supreme Court before. Um, it's not that the court is overruling precedents at a higher clip than its predecessors. There have been aggressive overruling eras before. It's that the court's not accountable at all. There's no sort of sense on the part of the justices that subjecting themselves to congressional accountability and oversight is actually part of
0: their job. And to be, to be clear, I mean, John Roberts, as we reported at the Lever, I mean, John Roberts, when it comes to ethics as just, just one example in one of his annual reports uh, he said uh, they were talking about uh, a code of ethics congress putting in place a code of ethics uh, at the supreme court and and he said something to the effect of he wrote this that it it hasn't been litigated whether congress has the authority to create A set of, uh, you know, ethics rules at the court, he said essentially they were willing to kind of accept that they need to do something, but that he he was – in other words, he was sort of flagging the idea that, hey, wait a minute, I'm not even stipulating that you, Congress, are allowed to do much of anything, which – in a sense is a, is kind of an a really extreme viewpoint even though of course it was kind of couched in the in the moderate sounding language of of John Roberts now this is a good a good segue to something that's been in the news uh, very recently uh which is this question of judicial review there have been a lot of, of progressives lately saying that congress should use its authority when it passes laws uh, to limit the courts uh, right to review the legislation that, that Congress has passed. Now, unfortunately, um, this has now been used very recently or attempted to be used, uh, to protect a fossil fuel pipeline. Uh, this is in the debt ceiling deal. Uh, Congress put in, in language. This is Joe Manchin's pipeline deal. They put in, uh, language essentially saying the court system, the judicial branch cannot essentially review uh the legality of all of the issues surrounding expediting this fossil fuel pipeline now without getting into necessarily the details of the specific pipeline project this question of judicial review how much of, how much leeway how much authority does congress have to say we've just passed a law and hey supreme court i don't care what you say about it you're not allowed to review this like like is congress allowed to do that what does the constitution say about judicial review where do you come down on that
1: uh, so, at the risk of giving you a law professor answer, the answer is maybe, um, <laughs> right? But, but I mean, let, let me sort of put some 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 meat on that. I mean, so the short version is, Congress has broad control over the Supreme Court's jurisdiction. Um, there's a, a pretty decent argument that Congress does not have unlimited control over the Supreme Court's jurisdiction. Otherwise, there'd be no point in having a Supreme Court. Sure. Um, and so, the the sticking point. I teach this in the the federal courts class in law school. Um, The sticking point is, where's the line? So I mentioned, you know, there's this 1868 case where Congress stops the Supreme Court from ruling on the legality of Reconstruction, because Congress is worried that the court might say it wasn't legal. There are examples of that. But, I mean, David, I think the the broader point here is what we call jurisdiction stripping um, is yet another tool Congress has in its tool bag to exert leverage over the court, whether it's exercising that power to the constitutional line, or even past it. And so part of why I wrote the book was because I think we fall into this trap of talking about the court as nothing more than the sum total of its merits rulings. Um, Dobbs bad, Bruin bad, Obergefell good. And what that really neglects is that there are serious institutional problems with the court right now, that ought to trouble even those who are less bothered by the bottom lines of the individual cases. And yet we, we have this perverse way of talking about the court as an institution based on 1% of its work um, and without taking into account the much broader historical and institutional context that tells a very different story about this institution. You mentioned the chief justice's year-end report. This is actually such a great example. So Warren Berger starts this practice in the mid-1970s. And he envisioned it as sort of tantamount to a State of the Union address. Um this is Berger trying to elevate himself relative to the president, like I too get to give a fancy speech every year. Um but but the but the sort of the, the kernel of it that's so interesting is he he styled it, he viewed it as a wish list to Congress. Like, dear Congress, I'm giving you a year-end report on what we need. And that persists all the way through his tenure. It persists through Rehnquist's tenure as chief. It's only in 2009, in John Roberts, I think, fifth year-end report, that he stops asking for stuff. Um, and then fast forward to the one, I think, from 2021 that you were quoting from, where he says, you know, we'll be the keepers of our own counsel about our ethics. Like, this is the mentality that we should all have common cause in pushing back against whether or not we agree or disagree with particular substantive rulings of the court. And this is a huge part of why I wrote this book and of the the, sort of the conversation I'm hoping the book helps to provoke.
0: Okay. So the last question then is, uh, if you had a wand and you could just wave it (laughs) and, you know, two, three, four different things could happen immediately, what would they be? And I, and I want to, I want to, also ask a specific question here, especially when it comes to uh, denying cert, you know, the, the, the court just saying, no, we're not going to hear this case. Uh, arguably, it must be what, hundreds uh, of cases are coming to the court asking, you know, thousands, uh, please adjudicate our case. And it, it stands to reason that, that the court can't always, you know, Provide a written reason why they're just saying no. It's just like, it's that, that, that doesn't sound necessarily feasible. Although maybe you think, you think it is. So, so short of that, when you tell us what you would wave a wand to fix this shadow docket problem, this legitimacy problem, this lack of accountability problem, like practically speaking, how can the court do, do better? How can we have a better institution? Uh, but also in a world where the court does have to deny you know, thousands of cases and can't always provide a rationale for that?
1: So, I mean, it's it's the right question. I mean, the, to quote a, a, an old common law named Jerry Gunther, um, the trick is whether we really want the court to be 100% principal 20% of the time. Um, and, <laughs> and and I think what, what it boils down to is I would not start with the certiorari piece, the the sort of appeals piece, I would start with the emergency piece because those are the rules that have the most impact. And what I would say is, you know, the court should feel obliged and, if necessary, be obliged to provide a rationale whenever it changes the status quo, whenever it grants an emergency application. Denying applications, fine. Many of them might be borderline frivolous. But if the court is going to assert its power to step into a dispute and change what's happening, change the relevant at least law on the ground, if not law in the books. It's got to tell us why. Um, and if time does not permit it to right, then write a you know ha- put a placeholder ruling in effect until you can write. Um, that's where I would start because, and this may sound trite, David, but I think it's an important point because it's in the rationales that the justices are most judicial and least political and I don't mean like least partisan right in their, in their behavior, because it's the rationales that make them judges. It's not the robes. Um, And if you believe that it's the rationales that make these nine people judges and not the robes they're wearing, then that's the commitment they ought to feel whenever they're going to hand down a ruling that affects the status quo that impacts thousands, millions of people like we've seen so often in the last six, seven
0: years. To add to that, um, now, I say this with an asterisk, and the asterisk being that that many of these judges seem uh, uninhibited, unconcerned with, with uh, sort of contradicting their own previous rulings and their own previous rationales. So that's my asterisk here. But in a normally functioning society, the judges would issue uh, rulings or at least rationales on emergency orders and the like, which would tell society, okay, well, look, the courts are basically saying we can't do it this way, but they've left open the possibility of doing it that way, or this is their principle. And that's the, I mean, this sort of this common law-ish idea. I mean, I'm not a law professor, but this sort of idea that like the court is saying like, here's our basic outlook on things. And that's why we're explaining to you so that you as a society can then operate within those parameters. Now, again, the asterisk is that uh, some of these judges feel, I guess, uh, free to just just sort of ignore what they've previously written, you know, a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. So there's, that's sort of a separate problem, but, but I think that, that you're, that you're zeroing in on something that's so important, like the stability of a society, you know, uh, uh, it's a nation of laws, not men, right? Like that whole set of principles relies on, in this case, the court saying here is a rationale for a set of rulings and you, the society can operate within those parameters, when when there is no rationale for these rulings, and, and I'll give you the last word on this, it, it it leaves society, I guess, in in a certain way, guessing. It's not just that the institution becomes uh, has less legitimacy; it's that the society is kind of stumbling around in the dark, not necessarily knowing uh, whether it's uh, legislating at the state, local, or federal level, not really knowing what the parameters are.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I love the, the quote to the John Adams in the Massachusetts constitution, right? Ours is a government of laws and not men. Right. Um, what's the difference between laws and men words. Um, right. <laughs> the, the difference between laws and men is, are the decisions being guided by written down expressed rules or the decisions, you know, Caesar pointing his thumb up or down. Um, and right. The former is the rule of law and the latter is the rule of man. Um, And the problem when you have a Supreme Court with this much power, including the power to basically put its thumb up or down without providing rationale, is not that any one ruling is suspect, David, like that's too much, right? It's that we lose faith in the institution that it's acting in a way that is judicial and not just nakedly political. And if the court is going to be operating in a way that's nakedly political, It is failing to live up to its end of the bargain. The Constitution creates an independent judiciary that's not subject to direct election, but not an unaccountable judiciary. It's walking that tightrope that we did imperfectly, but we did for 200 years. And that I think the last 35 years we've fallen off of. And I think the shadow docket is one very accessible uh, uh, example of that. I think the current ethics swirl is another example of that. But, David, there will be other examples tomorrow. And, you know, the, the reason why I wrote the book was so that we would start talking about the court this way as opposed to here's the 47th reason why Dobbs is wrong. You know, <laughs> that's not an unimportant conversation, but it sure. just it misses so much of what's truly fundamentally
0: flawed with the court as an institution today. Steve Vladek is a professor of law at the University of Texas School of Law. He's the author of the terrific, important, and fascinating new book, The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. You can also find him on Twitter at Steve underscore Vladek. That's V-L-A-D-E-C-K. Steve Vladek, thank you so much for taking time today. Thank you so much for writing this book. It's hugely important.
1: Thanks, David. Great to be with you.
2: That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Levertime Premium get access to our weekly bonus episodes. To listen to Levertime Premium, head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber. When you do, you will also get access to all of the Lever's Premium content, including our weekly newsletters and live events, and that is all for just $8 a month or $70 for the year. One last favor, please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Lever Time, this podcast, on your podcast app. And make sure to check out all of the incredible reporting that our team has been doing over at LeverNews.com. Until next time, I am Frank Capello. Rock the boat. The Lever Time Podcast is a production of The Lever and The Lever Podcast Network. It's usually hosted by David Sirota. Our producer is me, Frank Capello, with help from The Lever's lead producer, Jared Mayer.